want you to, to think of um, these five couples this morning and tell me what it is that these five couples have in common. So Romeo and Juliet, Salim and Anarchali, most of you probably haven't heard of them, Napoleon and Josephine, Marie and Pierre Curie, and Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Any guesses what those five couples have in common? Louder? In love? Oh, some weren't enemies. They are, by many uh, historians and scholars and poets and romantics, considered to be five of the greatest love stories ever. Now, some of them are real. Napoleon and Josephine, Mary and Pierre Curie, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, real people. Some are contrived, Romeo and Juliet, a great love story, maybe the greatest, but contrived. But throughout history, these five stories, or the f- stories of these five couples' love, have captured the hearts and the imaginations of people all over the world. Love. So my question to you this morning is, what is love? A group of uh, four through eight-year-olds were asked just that, and their answers varied from, like, quite funny to actually very, very profound. So here's some of what a few of them said. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) I cannot wait for my kids to fall in love and that be the extent of their love. That'll be good. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. That is true love. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening the presents and just listen. Pretty deep. Pretty deep. Um, When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. (laughs) Only in the comics. Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. When you tell someone something bad about yourself and you're scared they won't love you anymore, But then you get surprised because not only do do they still love you, they love you even more from a young child. Pretty cool. Love is when mommy sees daddy uh, smelly and sweaty and still says he's handsomer than love in Washington. (laughs) And love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. Priceless, eh? Love. So love is really the theme of our lives. It's the, the main reason for our existence. Love is actually the very purpose that we were created for. We're the objects of God's obsession, and nothing, nothing can change that obsession. You are the object of God's obsession. That verse that says, God so loved the world, includes you. You're part of the world and he so loves you. Do you know what it means that God so loves you? Ephesians 3.19 says that when we experience the love of Christ, we will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. 
Oftentimes, we think of love as this kind of wishy-washy, abstract, emotional thing. We don't really necessarily understand it. But the writer of Ephesians says that when we truly experience the love of Christ, only then will we be, will we be made complete with the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. That is not wishy-washy. That's powerful stuff. And so today, I want us to have a glimpse, a little bit more of a glimpse of what true love is. God so loves the world. Have you ever seen the so loves in person? I'll tell you, uh, I'm sure you have. And this is probably a little bit of a silly example, but our dogs, Ellen and Olivia, have a case of the so loves. Probably more Ellen than Olivia. Every time, from the moment we, we get them out of, uh, of their room in the morning until the moment they go to bed at night, and even beyond that, um, Ellen will not leave Olivia alone. Olivia gets up, Ellen's right there beside her. Olivia goes outside, she's right there beside her, won't go anywhere without Olivia. Olivia uh, eats from the food bowl, Ellen just sits there and watches until she's done. Ellen is, and then won't eat until she's finished. If Olivia does anything, Ellen is right there beside her. And we're actually a little bit worried because Olivia is older than Ellen. What's going to happen when Olivia dies? Ellen will be lost. She so loves Olivia. So kind of a silly, not so uh, human example. But my stepmom is actually an ideal example of somebody with the so loves. She was married before my dad and her got together, and she had two kids in her first marriage. And then um, my dad brought two kids into the mar- marriage when they got married, and they had two more kids. So she had four natural kids. And then to, to top that all off, uh, we adopted five more kids. So there's 11 of us. And the funny thing is, that's not the so loves that I'm talking about. The so loves are, um, are this. My, my, mother, my stepmother raised me from the time that I was uh, six or seven years old, and I've always called her mom, and all of her kids always called her mom. Doesn't matter what they did, whether they joined a cult, whether they commit multiple crimes, go to jail multiple times, do drugs, deal drugs, act as a thug for a drug dealer, you name it, and I won't tell you which one of those are true and which ones aren't. I'll leave you to guess that for yourself. But the point is, it doesn't matter what those kids did. She would always love them, always defend them, always be there for them. She has a case of the so loves. The point of all this is that God has a case of the so loves for you. It doesn't matter what you do. He will always love you. He will always pursue you. And today I want to look at a passage that will hopefully leave you with absolutely no doubt about that fact. So we're going to be looking at um, the book of Hosea. 715 years before Jesus came to earth to deal with the sin problem, God's in the funerary, ridiculous, illogical love shows up on the scene uh, in the form of this young man named Hosea. Hosea was a prophet living in the northern province of Israel and um, And if you look at the prophets that came before Hosea and after Hosea, they were all given kind of these peculiar tasks. But I'll have to, when you read Hosea and we look at this, I have to say that Hosea's task is probably the most peculiar assignment of them all. You'll find that uh, most of the prophets in the Old Testament didn't just go to speak their prophecies. They actually got to live their prophecies. And so God assigns Hosea to be this prophet, to be the voice of 
his voice to the people of his generation. But God doesn't give Hosea this task to do on his own. So today we're going to look at the story of Hosea and of his wife. Now Hosea's wife had, a, had, a, had two major issues. And the first is her name, Gomer. You have to think that who's going to name their daughter Gomer? Maybe her parents didn't love her so much, and, and maybe that led to her second problem, or her second issue. And the real issue with Gomer, all joking aside, is that she was a, a prostitute. So God's ridiculous, illogical, and embarrassing assignment for Hosea, his voice to the people, the prophet, was to go out and find a prostitute and marry her. And so that's what Hosea did. And that's where we're going to pick up. If you turn to Hosea uh, chapter 1, we're going to start reading um, that first chapter just so we can get a sense of, of Hosea and what God called him to. So Hosea 1 says, The Lord gave the message to Hosea, son of Beri, during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Johash, was king of Israel. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, Name the child Jezreel, for I am about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed in Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. Soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Name your daughter Loruhamah, not loved. For I will no longer show love to the people of Israel or forgive them, but I will show love to the people of Judah. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses or charioteers, but but by my power as the Lord their God. After Gomer had weaned Loruhamah, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, Name him Loami, not my people. For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. Yet the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. Then at the place where they were told, You are not my people, it will be said, You are children of the living God. Then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together. They will choose one leader for themselves, and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, when God will again plant his people in his land. In that day, you will call your brothers Ami, my people, and you will call your sisters Ruhamah, the ones I love. Now, just keep your finger in there because we're going to turn back to that in a little bit. But uh, as we look through this story of Hosea and what God's called him to do, Hosea does marry Gomer. And it seems like for a while, maybe things are going well for Hosea and for Gomer. Because uh, it tells us that together, Hosea and Gomer had a baby boy. And they named him Jezreel. And then it seems like maybe after a little bit more time, things started to cool off between Hosea and Gomer. Because there's another child born. But this time the Bible doesn't say that it's born to Gomer and Hosea. 
It doesn't say that Gomer bore Hosea another son. It simply says that soon Gomer became pregnant again. And the name they gave Gomer's daughter seems to indicate that it wasn't a child born in love. And they named the baby Loruhamah, not loved. And then it seems that after, after this second child, it seems that maybe Gomer even drifts a little bit further from Hosea. And shortly after Loruhamah is born, Gomer has a second son. Again, no mention that this son was born to Gomer and Hosea. No mention that Gomer bore Hosea another son simply that she became pregnant again. And this time it seems pretty obvious that the child isn't Hosea's because he names the child Lo-Ami, not my people. A name chosen by God, no, no doubt meant to serve kind of a dual purpose, to remind the people of Israel that they had wandered far from God and to remind Hosea, Gomer, and the child that it was not, in fact, Hosea's people. Now, Not only are those names odd, but they each would have had a particular significance to the people of Israel. Jezreel was the valley where Ahab and Jezebel were brought to justice. Ahab and Jezebel had killed multiple prophets. And and Jezebel, as a result, was tossed out the window by her servants and left to be eaten by dogs in the street. And, uh, And then in the valley of Jezreel, 70 of Ahab's descendants were beheaded, and their heads were piled up at the entrance to the valley of Jezreel. And so Jezreel wasn't known just as this valley. It was known to the Israelite people as a dark place, every time as a place where retribution t- took place. And so can you imagine that every time that child's name was called Jezreel, death, come here, he would be reminded of the history of the Israelite people. Think of the second child, Loruhamah, meaning not loved. Again, another sad reminder. Loruhamah, not loved. What are you doing? Stop it. And Loami, not my people, not my kin, or maybe more literally, not my child. Could you imagine how that child would have felt with that constant reminder? And to top all of this off, One morning, Hosea wakes up, and Gomer is nowhere to be found. She's not in bed beside Hosea when he wakes up. He starts calling for her, Gomer. He goes to the kitchen, hoping maybe she's just making a cup of coffee, and she's not there. He goes to the kids' room, and she's not there. He checks the basement and the bathrooms and checks outside. Maybe she's tending the garden, but she's not there. She's gone. She's left him. And now he's a single dad with three kids. He's arguably one of the most famous people in Israel at the time. Embarrassment is going to be apparent. She's gone. He's probably thinking, I was supposed to be a beacon of hope for Israel, and I can't even keep my wife at home. And I'm not sure what happened after that. I'm sure he had some dark days. But eventually, God comes to Hosea, and he says, Hosea, here's the plan. Go find her. Okay, God. And marry her again. Marry her again? Yeah. Hosea, go and find her and marry her again. And so this is where we pick up the second part of the story. So hopefully you've got the book of Hosea 
uh, still got your finger there. And look at chapter 3. Wife again of Hosea. It's a short chapter. Then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. And this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I brought her back, or bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Then I said to her, you must, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. During this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even with me. This shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or a prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, Jesus. David's descendant, Jesus, their king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. In other words... The people of Israel at the time were enamored with the things of the world. They had turned to other gods. They had worshipped them. They had participated in things that weren't of God. And, and, and it's interesting to note that at this time in history, the Israelite people were at a high point. They were, things were going well for Israel. They, the economy was firing on all cylinders. Things were going well. They were prosperous. It was a good time for the Israelites. And love at this point in history was a major theme for the Israelite people. They had three main themes, three main philosophies of love, though. And their philosophies were this. Love could be purchased. If you couldn't find love with someone else, you could purchase it. Love is simply the pursuit of self-gratification. It's all about fulfilling myself. And the third philosophy is that love can be found and is discovered through inanimate objects or things. If you can't find love through a person, you can't self-gratify, you can go out and buy yourself things, and that will satisfy your need for love. And as I was preparing for today to offer this about the Israelite people, it made me think how eerily similar that sounds to the times that we're living in today. The concept of love has become so convoluted. How often do we say without meaning it, hey, love you, man? How often do we say things like, wow, I love those chocolate chip cookies? How often do we say, I saw this movie, I loved it, you got to go see it. Hey, I love you, man. The concept of love has gotten so convoluted. We throw the word and the concept around so much that its meaning has become confused. We don't even really understand its total meaning anymore. But God's love seems to pierce through the confused, convoluted ideas of what love is, the ideas that are proliferated through our culture, that love can be purchased, that love is about self-gratification, that love is about stuff and about things. This is not love. This is not love. And so God says, I will demonstrate to my people what love really is. One scholar wrote that other than the death, resurrection, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the story of Hosea and Gomer is the greatest love story in the Bible and possibly the greatest love story in all of history. So Hosea gets the second part of his assignment. Go and look for her, Hosea. And he does. And you have to think, what must this have been like? 
He's going to look for his wife where a man of God should not ever be, where a child of God should never go. Now, let's remember, Hosea is a famous speaker in Israel. He's a preacher. He's a prophet. And God gives him the assignment, go down to the red light district. Go down to the brothels and find your wife there. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Hey, have you seen Gomer? Gomer the prostitute? Yeah. Have you seen her? (laughs) Yeah, I've seen her. Who hasn't? Could you tell me? Or could it be? No, man, I'm sorry. I haven't, I haven't seen her lately. Or do you think maybe he had to ask some of, her, uh, some of her customers? Hey, have you seen my wife, Gomer? Your wife? I, I didn't know you guys were still together. I'm, I'm sorry, man. I, I'm, I really, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, I understand, but... Have you seen her? I need to find her. Have you seen Gomer? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen her. A, a couple of blocks over. I'm, so, I'm sorry, man. I really didn't know. And it, it doesn't explicitly say so, but if you read between the lines and put it all together and look at the history, where is it that Hosea eventually finds Gomer? He finds her on an auction block. In that time in history, the Israelites would have had an auction specifically for this type of thing. And they would have had the woman up on auction, stripped down, bare naked, so that the the people that were making bids could see exactly what it was that they were bidding for. And this is what Hosea walks in on. Can you imagine? And he probably said something like, hey, that's my wife. And the auctioneer probably would have said, I don't care who she is. She's mine now, and if you want her, you're paying the price. And what was that like for Gomer? She probably couldn't even look at Hosea. She probably never imagined that he would come looking for her to pay the price for her. Does he have to outbid other bidders? Maybe he does. But he says, I'll pay Whatever the price, I'll pay it. And it turns out he pays 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley. And we're left saying, wait a second, Hosea, she's already yours. I know, but I'll pay for what's already mine. The Bible says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And yet God sent his only son to spill his blood on a torture tool to pay for us even though we're already his. Because humanity has the peculiar position of already being the possession of its creator. And yet he was willing to pay the price again to redeem us, to restore us to himself. We are already his. In case you didn't know that, you're already his. And yet he's willing to pay the price for you again. And so this is where we find Hosea. Hosea pays the set price. And then he goes and he marries her again. He renews his vows to her again. That's what he's doing. He's renewing his vows to her. They're renewing their marriage. And this is what he says to her in verse 3. You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same way towards you. To be honest, that's not what I would have said. 
And then the Spirit of God comes upon Hosea right after he's purchased his wife back. And he starts to prophesy about God's children. And this is what he says later on in Hosea 3. This shows that Israel, I will go, they will go a long time without a king or without a prince and without sacrifices or sacred pillars, without priests or even idols. But afterwards, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of, of the Lord and of his goodness. Those weren't the times that Hosea found himself in. The people of God at that time would have trembled in fear of the Lord, in fear of his judgment. But what Hosea is saying, what God is saying through Hosea, is that there is a new world order coming, a time when people will no longer fear his judgment, but will rejoice in his goodness. His good minds me that Romans 2, 4 tells us that God's kindness, His goodness is what leads us to repentance. Not fear, His goodness leads us to repentance and to change. So let me ask you, who is Hosea? God is Hosea. Hosea literally translated means salvation. God is our salvation. And Gomer literally translated, means completion or perfection. Who is Hosea? That's our God. Who is Gomer? That's me. And that's you. He won't stop. He will pursue you to the most horrible, despicable corners of the planet to find you and to pay the price for you. Jesus is my Hosea. I'm Gomer. Gomer means completion. And God, through Jesus Christ, completes me. Nothing needs to be added when I meet my Hosea, when I meet Jesus. Nothing can be added. I'm complete. He's paid the price. In Matthew chapter 9, the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, why do you eat with such scum, why do you eat with the rejects and with the castaways? And he quotes the book of Hosea. He, go back, he goes back to Hosea and he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have not come for those who find themselves or who think themselves righteous, but for those who know that they're lost. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am your Hosea. He's talking to Jews who would have heard the teachings in the, of the prophet Hosea, and they would have been familiar with this. And he's saying, I am your Hosea. I am your salvation, and I will go, and I will look, and I will search, and I will search, and I will pay whatever the cost. I will pay it to restore you to me. Do you get the sense through the story of Hosea that God loves you? God loves his people. Ephesians, your roots, 17 to 19 says, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Think about it. How wide is God's love? For most of us, our love is limited to our immediate family, maybe some close friends, maybe some neighbors, and maybe some of the people sitting around you. But for most of us, there are limits to how wide our love is. 
Now think about the person or the people in this world that you despise the most. Maybe you don't have a good relationship with your boss. Maybe it's someone like Paul Bernardo. Maybe it's a group like ISIS. Maybe it's the Canada Revenue Agency. I don't know. But we all have people or groups that we would rather not have in our, in our worlds. Now think about this. Despite how much we despise them, God is crazy in love with those people. God loves them the same way that Hosea loved Gomer. God loves them the same way that he demonstrated through Jesus Christ that he loves you and he loves me. The same way he loves us, he loves those people. His love is wide. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time, to show us his grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Not because we deserved it. God's love is wide. God's love is long. It's eternal. It's never-ending. It doesn't run out. His patience doesn't run thin at the end of the day because we've been nagging and nagging and nagging. It doesn't run out because he's had a bad day. He doesn't keep, that's it, for the business hours where he's forced to love everyone who comes through the doors and then at 4 o'clock when business closes, that's it for the day. His love never ends. He never gives up. Some of us here today are a testimony to that fact. And we can rejoice in knowing that because God's love never ends, we can be here today a testimony to his love. Jeremiah 31.3 says, Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. And Hebrews 13.5 says, Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. God's love is long. God's love is high. When we, we often strive for the best of everything. You know, we, we look for the best coffee. We look for the best uh, clothes. We look for the best shoes, the best phone, the best cars, the best houses. We look for the best of everything. And uh, our quest for the best is often a quest to fill a void that stuff cannot fill. And God says to us, my love is high enough. I can fill that void. It's only through God that we can experience the richest, the highest, the purest, purest and finest love imaginable. And all we have to do is accept it. God's love is high. And God's love is deep. When plants are sown and tended with love and with care, they have the best chances for growth and the best chances for a good harvest. Now, last year, um, I decided to try to try my hand at gardening. And so we, we, you know, we built a, a garden bed and we planted some seeds. And uh, Krista said, Mark, you should probably water those seeds. And I was like, no, no, no. You don't see somebody going out in nature and watering and weeding the plants. I think they'll be fine. They'll be fine. And what happened at the end of the season, when I went to look and see what was there, either there was nothing there or what was there was all shrivels like that and brown. I got no harvest from that. God's love is like that. God is like the good gardener who gives us things to help us grow so that we can have a rich, abundant harvest in our lives. God's shown us his love in multiple ways. He gave us his word. The testimony of how he's loved and interacted with and preserved his people throughout history. 
God's given us His Son, the ultimate example of how to interact with other people in love, the ultimate example of His own love by sending Him to die on a cross for us, the ultimate example for us of the hope that we have for our future. And He's given us His Holy Spirit to guide and to counsel and direct us, all because He loves us. His love for us is deep. Romans 8, 38 to 39 says, And I am convinced that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is true love. That is deep, wide, long, high love. Ephesians three seventeen to 19 says, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life that comes from God. It's God's love that makes a difference in our lives. And my encouragement to you today is this. If you all of the day and you have never accepted God's love for you, know this. He did all of this for you. Whether you realize it or not, you're already his child. That wasn't enough, though. He, he created you, and as far as you may run from him, as fast as you may run, he will always pursue you. He will never give up. All he wants is for you to know how much he loves you. And if you have already experienced the love of God, I want you to never stop striving to get to know him better. Ephesians 3, 19 says, may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. We may never fully understand the extent of God's love for us, but when we try to understand, and the more deep we get in it, and the more fuller we understand it, the more complete we're made in Him, the more full we're made in this life, and the more power that we have through God. The more we experience just how much He truly loves us, and we do that through looking into His Word, seeing the example of His love throughout history, through the Israelite people, time and again, who turned away from Him, but who time and again, He sent, he sent someone to call them back to Him. He never, never, never left them, on, left them. Through His Son, the ultimate example of His love for us, He's shown us how much He truly loves us. He sent His Holy Spirit to guide and direct us because He loves us. The more we truly understand His love for us, the more abundant our lives become, and the more He empowers us with the power that only comes from Him. Can I pray with you? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the example it is of Your love to us and the story of Your love that comes through time and time and time again through the history of Your people. We thank You that Your love never fails, that You never give up, that You will pursue us to the ends of the fall, that we can't run fast enough to get away from Your love. 
Help us to fully understand what that love means for us, how it can change us. And as we do that, we, we trust that you will make us more into the people that you have called us to be, that you empower us to be your people in this time, because we ask it in your Son's name. Amen.